this is probably going to be, well, there's no probably, this is going to be a different video in my normal style, simply because I've already kind of done a video about this movie, and I'm only really doing this for completion's sake, to talk about the things that I feel an additional are worth talking about, as opposed to what I talked about the last time. And I've talked about this movie a lot on my streams, too. I know not everyone catches those, uh, but there's no way to avoid repetition here, is what I'm trying to say. I will start off with something that may or may not drive people away from this video. This video was almost a lamentation. It was in consideration for one. I'll wait if you want to close the video. Um, it's okay, I understand. I imagine a lot of people closed the video after the, my big diatribe at the beginning of Nemesis. But you notice it does not say lamentation at the top there. And it's funny because when I look back at interactions, when I rewatched this, I actually enjoyed it more than I should have. But I could tell you why that is. I could fully analyze why I enjoyed this film. Because, <laughs> okay, I've talked about this before, and, I've, and I'll talk about this again. In my opinion, Roberto Orki and Alex Kurtzman, and I hope I'm pronouncing their names wrong because I hate them, are the worst writers um, that I've seen in a really long time. These two gentlemen have have a pretty impressive list of bad scripts under their belts. It's funny because they've also been working on a few films that aren't known for having bad scripts. They're not known for having good scripts either. But if you pay attention, in basically every film they've done, there's usually one other person or on occasion two other people who are basically working on the script with them. And I feel and this is one of the situations where how bad the script is comes down to how much of an influence those two had over the script versus the other people. I mentioned back in 2009 that Abrams uh, exerted more control over the script, and this is why I'm mentioning that and why it was relevant, because 2009's script was a lot more tight and a lot more focused as far as its overall uh, story arc and, and the way that the story proceeded and the way the character development proceeded than this one, which, well, I made the argument once that this film does not actually have a theme, which is one of its problems, but then one of my viewers actually mentioned that, no, this this movie has like 50 themes, and that's its problem. And in hindsight, I think that's actually a good way to describe this film. Before I go any further, though, I want to state why I enjoyed this film. The actors do a really good job, okay? I really do enjoy the actors' performances of the classic characters. I think they really nail the roles pretty well, and in many cases, at the very least, match their uh, their predecessors. Uh, so, so, so don't think this is some kind of, you know, oh, it's the new thing and therefore the old is better. Because that's not my mentality here. In actual fact, I think in some cases the new characters work better than the old characters. And I hate myself for saying that as a longtime Star Trek fan, but Zoe Zaldana, as I mentioned back in 2009, really nails Uhura. She's, in my opinion, the strongest actor, if not, or at the very least, tied for the strongest actor. The other one being uh, Zachary Quint. Uh... I've suddenly forgotten if that's his name or not. The gentleman who plays young Spock. Both of them did a really, really amazing job uh, of, of putting forth their performances of Uhura and Spock, respectively. And so there's some really good acting on display. And, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, Benedict Cumberbatch basically does Khan perfectly. And I mean that sincerely. If I was trying to think of exactly how to portray Khan, and I mean no offense whatsoever to... Uh, to Ricardo Monteblom, but Benedict Cumberbatch nails the role. Like I said, almost perfectly. I've talked about this before. I've gushed about it before. You know, I'm not going to rehash what I talked about there. Suffice it to say, his portrayal of Khan was basically perfect. The director, 
I like Abrams. I think he's actually a very talented director. I've said this before. It's one of those weird things. I always find myself in a weird situation when it comes to internet uh, opinion in that sometimes I agree and sometimes I don't. And when I don't, I just I, I feel that need to point out, well, you know, <laughs> like I've said before, uh, with regards to two other directors, uh, both of which I'll be mentioning in this video, I feel Abrams is actually a talented director. The thing is, there are a lot of directors out there which are talented in general. They can just do, they, they're just good directors. Jonathan Frakes, uh, Steven Spielberg, um, Stanley Kubrick, if we want to go back to the old stuff, you know. Kurosawa, if you want to go back to basically the guy who invented cinema for all kinds of purposes. You know, directors who can just direct and they're amazing at it. Then there are directors who are good at directing this type of thing. There's a reason why there's actually usually multiple directors working on a film. Uh, and then the reason why there's such a thing as a second unit and the second unit director uh, and that kind of thing. Because usually some people are really good at pulling a good form performance out of character moments. Or some people are really good at performing a performance out of an action scene or that kind of thing. One of those directors I mentioned that I'm going to defend here is George Lucas. The man knows cinematography. He is a film geek. He knows how to do patterns in the presentation and style of his films. He knows how to make it so that visually, and in terms of editing and whatnot, and the way the scenes are presented, that there's something there. He doesn't know how to write worth a damn, and he doesn't know how to direct character stuff worth a damn. He is terrible at both. I talked about this back during my Star Wars videos. But the stuff he's good at, I think the man deserves genuine props for. But there's another director I want to bring up, and this is where things get kind of weird. Into Darkness has a lot of similarities to another film for me, okay? Now, I'm really hesitant to say this because I have a feeling a lot of you are going to hate me and post hate comments and all that, and I'm kind of used to that by now. Um, all I ask is, is, okay, I know that 2009 and Into Darkness both are kind of polarizing films. And as last time, you know, I ask that you be civil amongst yourselves. If you want to bash me, I deserve it. I'm on the internet, and therefore I am a target. Don't bash each other, okay? Be nice to each other. You, 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 don't, you don't attack my viewers, okay? That, that's not how that works. So I'm now going to say the controversial thing, and I know I'm going to get blasted for this. But this film, in many ways, reminds me of Transformers 2, Revenge of the Fallen. Hear me out. Michael Bay, who is the third director I was going to mention, is a talented director in his own right. Now, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Michael Bay's directorial style is not explosions, okay? That's all second unit stuff, and most of the time he just says, go make explosions and make it awesome. And that's almost exact, his exact words. What Michael Bay's directorial talents actually lend themselves towards is a weird combination of down-to-earth perspective while still elevating the little man. There have been people who have actually analyzed his films, really de deconstructed them, and you could see his style in basically every film he's ever done. I, I mean, the Transformers, uh, especially the first Transformers, is a really good example of this, but arguably, arguably Armageddon is probably the single most textbook example of the Michael Bay film. You've got the everyman, the, the down-to-earth, blue-collar, honest hard workers are the people who are going to be lifted up and save the world because the people in charge, the eggheads, or the scientists, you know, NASA, do not know how to actually fix the problem. It's the same general concept in the first Transformers film. The government is, for the most part, the bad guys, other than the president, who the entire time is portrayed as just another guy. Or actually, the Secretary of Defense wasn't. But anyways, the point being... You know, for the most part, the presentation is such that those in charge, those in the government, are just kind of, eh, and the people down at the, at the bottom are the ones who actually have a brain and know how to deal with this kind of thing. And it appeals to that kind of audience. It's one of the reasons I've always felt his films started being popular. And then, of course, he became known for explosions, and that just kind of became a thing, but whatever. 
But I do think Michael Bay is, is talented as a director in his field. I think if he was actually allowed to, to be paired up with another director who knows how to do things like, I don't know, story arcs or characterization or whatnot, we would actually have some pretty good films. That's just my opinion on the matter. And I know it's an unpopular opinion because bashing Michael Bay is extremely popular. I mention this because Abrams is kind of in the same boat, isn't he? Abrams' directorial style leads himself towards being really good at two types of things. Setup, leading to payoff, and energy. I specifically say energy, not action. Because a lot of his scenes don't have action. And, and this is true in Lost, anybody who's watched that, or any of the other things he's directed. It's very obvious that sometimes nothing big is happening. You know, there's not some big gunfight or whatever. But you feel the tension. You feel the pace running through the scene. He's good at, at and I mentioned this with regards to Nicholas Meyer as well, who's another director who's just good overall, in my opinion, by the way. But um, Abrams can pull energy out of a scene where there shouldn't be any. Uh, I'll be talking about that specifically in just a moment. So he's good at energy, and he's good at that whole build-up thing. He's good at laying uh, his, his scenes in a style in a way that makes it so that there's a beat to it, and it's all building up to a moment, and then he knows how to pause. He knows how to pull a scene so that everything just kind of stops, and that's when the hammer hits, so to speak. Into Darkness is almost a textbook example of that. The entire film leading up to the scene where... This is your last chance for spoilers. This is it. Khan is in the is in the holding cell. Uh, most people consider this to be the best scene in the film, and it's a good reason for that. Because all the build-up leads up to that scene, and then the entire movie basically just like holds its breath for a moment, as it's just like recovering from everything that's happened. And but but the thing is, that's when the hammer hits. That's when all the quiet stuff hits. And it's his style overall and his approach that makes that work. It's hard to explain what I mean because you'd think it would be like da 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 BAM but instead it's da 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 and then everything you know is wrong. And that's the hammer. It's that quiet oh god, you know, kind of a thing. Now granted, we all knew it was Khan going into it, didn't we? But um <laughs> that's not what I mean. The reveal that it's Khan isn't what I mean. The reveal is about what's actually been happening with Starfleet. The reveal is that Khan has his sympathy. The reveal is the the character moments, the the revelation of how they did it. That's that's Abram's style right there. Bam! That's what he does. That's what he's good at. He's not good at everything. And neither is Michael Bay. There's the second similarity. Both men were pulled on... Uh, you know what? Actually, let me... let me Before I get it, let's talk about one of the things directorial style. Because I want to talk about this. A lot of people um, have asked me... Because I keep talking about directors, especially with regards to Voyager. What... <sighs> how do you put a, put a spotlight on to the differences in directing? Well, think of it this way. Nemesis and Into Darkness both have a scene that is effectively identical in construction. It's bare bones, right? Data has to run and jump from the Enterprise to the, the Mary Sue ship, and, which I'm still refusing to call it by its name, and, um, and Kirk and Khan have to jump from the Enterprise to the Vengeance, right? So... In, and, and it's the same bit of saying, our ship is disabled, their ship is disabled, we need to get to their ship and make sure it doesn't destroy our ship. You know, It's the same general concept between both uh, things. So the framework is identical. I would argue that the scene in, in Into Darkness is basically way, 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 way better. And it's not just the effects. Because I would think, I personally think that if Into Darkness used the same special effects style and time and, you know, previous, all that fun stuff, as Nemesis had, it would still be a better scene. And the reason is directing. A director determines where a camera is for a scene. Where it moves, how it moves, where the people move, 
the director talks to his actors and says, this is what you're feeling. This is what I want from you. This is how I want you to deliver this line. This is how I want you to be, emote yourself, you know. Now, an actor still has a lot of control over how they act. But a director can both kill a performance by being a terrible director. I've talked about this before, and indeed with regards to Nemesis. But also, can a director can pull a good performance out of an actor who's only mediocre or subpar. It's like, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. So that's the first thing the, actors do, the directors do. So Data's scene has almost no character moments of him jumping over there. It's just... Uh, Abram's scene has lots of moments, lots of close-ups. I want you to be portraying yourself in this way. I want you to be acting this way. And has a lot of cutting back and forth between the, the people to try and emphasize the energy of the scene. Second point, a director usually exerts a lot of control over the editing of a movie. And I say usually because sometimes directors don't bother with editing at all. Sometimes a director will only be the guy on the set with the cameras and what, and then he'll hand it off to the editors and, and walk away. Abrams is the kind of guy who, who goes to his editors and say, no, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. And admittedly, a fairly large number of directors also direct during the editing process. Because I mean, they take way more takes and way more footage than you actually see in the movie, right? So chop it down, chop this here, make this, cut to this scene, cut to this scene. That's still all directing, right? Going back to Nemesis, what we had was probably one of the dumbest editing jobs I've seen. It made the whole thing seem silly. This is ironic because the gentleman who directed that film, whose name I've already forgotten because screw him, was an editor. <laughs> But Abram sat down and said, okay, I want you to do this, I want you to do that, I want this kind of a thing for this scene. And sometimes a director can go to the special uh, effects department and say, I want you to emphasize this. I want you to do that. Now, again, how much influence a director exerts over the special effects department varies. Abrams is actually pretty well known for going to a special effects department and saying, I want you to do this kind of a thing. I want this feeling from this scene. And he'll describe it and he'll go it and he'll let them do their work. So he's kind of a, a nice mix, in my opinion, of still being involved and still giving them direction, which is his job, but being enough of a hands-off person to trust the professionals to do their job rather than trying to micromanage them. So what we get is a scene like the scene where uh, Kirk goes from the Enterprise to the Vengeance. Now, it's a silly scene, and that's one thing I want to point out. Both scenes are silly. The difference in my mind is the scene where Dedea goes across is... I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Every time I see it, I cannot help but laugh at how stupid it looks. The scene where Kirk goes across is high-paced, energetic, and gets across the feeling that what they're doing is genuinely dangerous because it should be. A single bit of bad shrapnel at the wrong time would probably kill them. And you get that feeling of that tension, that danger of the precision and difficulty in what's happening. And the fact that he basically only made it across because Khan and his super brain <laughs> managed to make it work. The, the, the scene was presented better, even though the framework was the same. That's directing. Okay, and yes, by the way, but just to make this clear, Abrams does not get full credit for that because that's not how that works. As I've said before, the directors may have 4% of what's happening to a film, a.k.a. there's hundreds and hundreds of people who determine what shows up on the, on the screen. So, but, but that 4% is the largest single chunk of anybody's influence. That, that's, I've, I've used that to describe that a lot. So moving on. Let's talk about the second way in which this film reminds me of Revenge of the Fallen. Both films were directed by people who didn't want to do it initially, but were talked into it basically on a deal, and then were handed a sequel when they really didn't want to do it. I talked about this last time with regards to Abrams and his whole wanting to do a Star Trek show thing. And then he was basically forced, thanks to contract, to do this film, and he really didn't feel it. 
However, credit where credit is due, in both cases, Michael Bay and Abrams, they did actually bother to put in some kind of an actual effort into presenting what they had. That leads me to the third similarity, and this is this third similarity is great because I've been talking about why I like these films. You know, good acting, good directing, good presentation, good effects. You know, why is it? Why is it that this movie was almost a lamentation? Well, the third similarity is why. Roberto Orki and Alex Kurtzman can go screw themselves because they wrote *Revenge of the Fallen* and *Into Darkness*, and it shows. These men, I could actually probably drag these people into my creative writing class, and I might even flunk these guys out of my class unless they actually learned a damn thing, because they are almost... I, I have actually used their writing and their scripts in Amazing Spider-Man 2, in Revenge of the Fallen, and in Into Darkness. These three films are literally textbook examples, literally textbook examples, of how not to do writing. Just in general. They don't know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> at all. I I actually thought about, when I was doing this film, I actually thought about sitting down and literally going down and listing, okay, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But the problem is, it's everything. It is literally everything. The whole thing is wrong. I'm, I'm, I, it, almost, it, it, it almost offends me as a writer, professionally and amateurishly, you know, per personally, to, to, to look at these people and the kind of work they put out and the fact that they not only get paid lots of money to write these terrible scripts... But then there's the final thing, the final insult. I like Spider-Man. I like Transformers. I love Star Trek. And these three, these two jackasses have touched all three franchises. And ruined three films. Ah! God! <laughs> now the funny thing is, Revenge of the Fallen's script problems are obvious. And most of Into Darkness are as well. But Into Darkness, I feel, is probably one of the best examples of their writing and how terrible it is. Because while the obvious stuff is there, if you start to deconstruct it, which I'm not going to do. I, I'm going to save myself the sanity. I'm sorry if you wanted me to rip this apart, this script apart. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to get that negative. I already did Nemesis. You guys talked me into it. That's as negative as I'm willing to go this week. But with regards to uh, with regards to the script, um, it's it, it's like okay, you look at a you look at something that's supposed to be a cake, and it's actually made out of. I don't want to get too harsh here, so let's just say you know meatloaf and ketchup, right? So its flaws as a cake, which is being presented as dessert, designed to be a sweet treat, are obvious, right? But when you actually look into the cake and you see, well, there's actually further problems here. Like the meat isn't actually cooked. And the ketchup is actually mustard. Or, and it started to go rancid a bit. And they actually didn't bake it so it has layers. So it actually is more like a cheesecake. And, you know, just all these little things that are done wrong on a little scale in addition to the obvious things that are wrong with it. That, that's this script in a nutshell. I, I know that's a really weird analogy. I'm, I'm kind of hungry right now. <laughs> Not anymore. Blah. I don't want to eat into darkness cake. Um... Let me just hit over a few obvious things here. First and foremost, I have to comment on this. I have to, but only because I haven't heard most people talking about the exact thing that bothers me. Super blood. And I gotta say it that way, because they actually call it that in the film. Super blood. 
Now, people people have made fun about the fact that they cure death a few dozen times, but the one thing I've never heard anyone comment is the type of death they cure. I have heard people try to defend the curing of death as simply using Khan's uh, you know, super blood in order to re, uh, reinitialize Kirk's brain, basically, to, to make it so that the neurons reconnect and the activity is, is, is going, the heart starts pumping again, all that fun stuff. And that would have made, actually, in all honesty, a lot of sense, in my opinion. If they had done that, if Kirk had died from massive physical trauma and internal bleeding and Khan's blood had been able to fix it, that would have actually bothered me less, believe it or not. Because you're not curing death at that point. What you have is a salve that actually makes a lot of sense in Star Trek's sense. Because Star Trek has always had stupidly advanced medical technology. So the ability to uh, take someone who has basically gone into uh, the beginning stages of, of death and actually be able to resuscitate them, that's something that, I mean, we've done that in real life, for God's sakes. And the other thing is, if they rezzed him quickly enough, then his brain would not have been inactive enough to the point where it would have degenerated past recovery. They even made a whole point of talking about that very subject in Voyager, where in Star Trek, it's actually within reason to re re revive someone within 12 or 24 or whatever it is. They gave a number, hours of them hitting brain death because they can still recover the brain at that point. If they can mend the body enough, you know, that makes a degree of sense. And the Borg are sufficiently advanced to recover bo drones who have been dead for like 96 hours or whatever the timing was. Because they're that much more advanced with their nanoprobes. So I'm a little more okay with that, even though it's dumb for story reasons that I'll go into in a second. But then you have to remember how Kirk died. And this just flings that out the window because Kirk didn't die from massive physical trauma or internal bleeding. Kirk died from ridiculous radiation overdose. Shadow, I hope you're paying attention. I know you're you're more into physics uh, and and uh, astronomy than anything, but I'm sure you and many other of my viewers right now know what radiation does to the body. It's actually kind of appalling what radiation does to the body at virtually every level. The the the, the level of assault that it attacks you with is insane. There's a reason Spock in the Wrath of Khan died and there was no hope for him it was because he had been so irradiated that he was gone in in their own words he's dead already you cured massive radiation overdose with super blood that is truly curing death that's why I, and and i have to mention that because that really adds to the impact of how stupid that is you could probably cure someone who has been through that kind of a death of someone who actually lost their head, for God's sake. Hang on, just put the head back on there, resew it, and then super blood. <laughs> oh, God. Just, and then they bring him back and it's... <laughs> oh, God, that bugs the crap out of me. I talked about this back in Threshold. I actually had a whole speech in Threshold about how you kill off a main character and the impact of it. I talked about this in Generations, for God's sakes. If you're going to kill a main... I talked about this in Wrath of Khan. If you're going to kill a main character, do something with it. Make it mean something, and for God's sakes, don't undo it unless you're only going to do it once, and you're going to make it a big deal. Okay? As I mentioned, I was okay with them bringing Spock back because they took an entire movie to do it and a unique combination of circumstances to do it. And this is important, they didn't repeat that mistake. They never brought anyone else back again amongst the, that particular setup anyways. Excuse me. This is dumb. The fact that Kirk just wakes up in a med bay, fine. And he's like, oh yeah, I met a serum from his super blood. A cured death. Jim. 
What does Kirk's death mean then, thematically? Uh, nothing, basically. What does Kirk's death mean in terms of the plot? Well, you could argue that it gives Spock the motivation to go after Khan, but I think he had that motivation anyways, so I would disagree with that. Um, what does Kirk's death mean with regards to their friendship and their characterization? This is the one and only thing I'll give the movie. It really, uh, I mentioned there's lots of themes running under this film, and there is actually one theme that I guarantee you was not done deliberately by the writers, because I cannot give them that kind of credit. And they've never talked about it in any of the interviews I've seen of them. So I, However, I have seen Abrams talk about this, and some of the actors. So again, I don't think the writers actually put this theme into the film. There is an overarching theme. There is in Into Darkness, and that theme is, what would you do? For people you care about, for those you love, for those who matter to you, what would you do? At the beginning of the film, we see a gentleman who works for Starfleet who is willing to kill himself and several of his co-workers to save his daughter's life. Early, technically, before the film even begins, we see Khan willing to make this super weapon for someone who is obviously stupid and even more evil than Khan is, at least in my opinion, and willing to go through all this horrible stuff in order to save his, his crew, his people. We see that Kirk is willing to violate uh, the Prime Directive and basically uh, possibly screw up this planet's people and their culture and religion for however many years to save Spock's life. We see that Spock is willing to die in order to salvage what he believes in, and so forth and so on. I'm only like 10 minutes into the film. The whole film has shades of this everywhere. In this scene, we see that Kirk was willing to do what Spock did back in Wrath of Khan, and for the same basic reasons. This is the Kobayashi Maru. I am willing to lay down my life because it is important enough to me to save my people in order to do so. My life is easily forfeit for that price. And that's the one thing I will give that scene. Then they bring him back. Now, everyone agrees that bringing him back was a dumb move. But the thing I most often hear is, why didn't not make Star Trek III the search for Kirk? And I've heard that theory a lot, and it sounds great and awesome, but I actually disagree. I know this sounds weird, but this is a new Star Trek. And if I was put in charge, I would argue stringently. I, I would defend this point. I, I may eventually lose, other people may have convinced me, but I would stand firm in my point that Kirk should stay dead. That he should never come back. That he died doing what he did best, saving the Enterprise. And that is a worthy, acceptable death. And that would have actually meant something, as opposed to, oh, I'm back, like, minutes later into the film. Hell, it's, even, it's like hours or days later, in character, for God's sakes. <laughs> and that's the final punch there. They bring him back for no real reason. They bring him back because, all right, status quo, reset button! I mean, people bash Voyager for hitting the reset button, but God, this is insipid. I hate these writers so much. So I had to comment on that. Let's comment on something else. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a galaxy map of Star Trek. Uh, you're probably, uh, if you're watching this, there's a good chance you're enough of a geek to have seen something. So you know that the Earth is like right here. If this is the galaxy, the whole galaxy, Earth is like right here. And Kronos is like way over here. It's a really long distance. It's a pretty long trip, even even in Star Trek. I shouldn't say even in Star Trek, because warp travel is relatively slow in Star Trek. But it's quite a ways away. I mention this because it's, it, it, it's important to give context when you say that Khan has a device that teleports him from Earth to Kronos in seconds. 
So Khan has developed a teleporter. Oh no, I'm sorry. Actually, Scotty developed a teleporter that can teleport you literally a quarter away across the galaxy, uh, maybe a fifth if we're willing to be generous. Instantly, basically. Unlike the Kirk being revived thing, I don't even feel the need to add anything to that. That's insane. This is one of the things... I do want to deconstruct this one point. It's one of the things that's indicative of their writing style. Jackass 1 and Jackass 2. I, I don't care about remembering their names anymore. I haven't written down, but screw them. They don't deserve that much respect. J1 and J2 have this... Uh, that's funny. I didn't even think... Okay, let's not call them that. We'll call them Bastard 1 and Bastard 2. Uh, B and B... Haha. Damn it, I can't avoid the Star Trek jokes here. These two bastards like to construct scripts in which things happen because they need to happen. It's actually classic, classic, uh, you know, 101 writing failure. In other words, an event happens in service of the plot and for no other reasons. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical. It doesn't flow from the themes. It doesn't make sense for the characters. It only happens because the plot demands it. Everyone's seen this across films, across movies, across games. The plot demands A, therefore A happens. It is classic bad writing. The problem with these guys, and why I give them so much flack, is all of their events happen like that. Everything that happens in this movie is, well, the plot needs it to happen, so... There's no sense put into anything. All of the events of Into Darkness are basically tiny little cells of events that are, for all intents and purposes, unconnected. The only connection is that overarching theme, and again, I give that to the directors and the actors, not them. So there's no real connecting point between these. It's just a series of events that happen. In the most cases, these events are completely unconnected to each other, thematically, character-wise, etc. There's a scene, for God's sakes, where they're about to go to this dangerous, horrible mission, and they actually stop to have a heart-to-heart -heart about their relationship. Why does that bug me? Because not only does that interrupt the flow of the movie, I'm, I'm not saying this, the heart the arc was a bad thing. It was a good thing. It should have happened elsewhere. It shouldn't have happened in that situation because that situation's dumb and makes the characters look like teenagers in a bad way. But it also interrupts the flow of the movie. It's like, I've talked before about pacing, and a good pace can sometimes be like, and then stop dead as an impact point. I talked about that before, even in regard to this movie. But that particular scene is more like, like racing down a highway and suddenly slamming on your brakes for two seconds for no reason and then trying to reaccelerate. You lose all your momentum, there's no real impact of it because it's a mistake and nothing is added to it and then you keep going slower and with, with having lost all the, uh, the impact, uh, the, uh, the impetus, the momentum that you had going. It's gone. I, you know what, I'm done, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to stop talking about how terrible writers they are. But I feel it's relevant to mention that their writing is so terrible that I almost made this film a lamentation solely based on the script. It is worth noting Revenge of the Fallen is also not a lamentation. If I can keep comparing the two films for just a moment. One of the things that's funny is Revenge of the Fallen has a theme as well, but it was also not intended by the writers. The theme of Revenge of the Fallen is, I know this is going to sound weird to you, faith. The idea of believing in something bigger than yourself and having faith that things will unfold in a certain way. I'm reminded of Star Trek VI, believe it or not. You must have faith that the universe will unfold as it should. And that theme is actually a weird undercurrent through most of the Rent of the Fallen, but again, was not intended by the writers, especially given that so many of the scenes that had that theme so prevalent 
are scenes that were not actually written by the writers because there was a writer's strike and they started work on the film before they'd actually written the script. I'm not going to defend that film too much. It's still a bad film. But the similarities continue to be striking because, again, that whole theme that was an intended thing. While I'm on the subject, both films get blasted for... You know what? No, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm, I'm done talking about the negatives. I really am. One other thing I do want to talk about uh, when it comes to Into Darkness is... A lot of the redesigns don't bother me on the face of the fact that it was a redesign. Okay? The fact that the Klingons look different doesn't bother me. The fact that I think they look dumb bothers me. Does that make sense? In other words, this is not, it's different and therefore it's ruined! It's, it's different and I don't like the new style. There's a difference in perspective between those two things. I don't actually like how the Klingons looked. In fact, I think they look kind of dumb, as I just mentioned. And I mention this because there's a few things that they did redesign-wise that I just like, eh? I'm not really into. And it's not because it's different. And I want to make this point because I've met plenty of other Trekkers and Trekkies who are in the same boat as I am. That they get blasted by other people, usually on the internet, for being, oh, well, you're just unpleasable. You just want everything to be like the original. No, we just want everything to be good. That's what we were asking for. Now, good, of course, is a relative term. I've heard people who actually really like the orc. Or orc, wow, I actually just said that. <laughs> the uh, Klingons' designs. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's cool. I think it's great that other people like it. But my point is you cannot say that our argument is invalid because you disagree with it by trying to imply something that is incorrect. Okay? You can't say, well, you just like, don't like it because you're Hitler. That's what you're effectively saying when you do that. Maybe an extreme example, but it's exactly the same connotations. You are wrong because unrelated thing here, that is actually not true. Don't do that. <laughs> Respect, tolerance. We disagree with each other, and that's great. It is our disagreements that make us a society, that make us a culture. If everyone was the same, we would just be one giant thing of gray. We would be gray goo, almost literally, and there would be no point in anything. So don't think that I'm trying to say that everyone has to agree with my thoughts on this film. In fact, I actually expect to get a few comments from people who really like Into Darkness, and I'm looking forward to reading them. I can't stand the film, except for the fact that I still kind of enjoy it. Like I was talking about earlier, it, it, there's certain parts of it that I really like. But when I rewatched this, it was like the weirdest combination of, yeah, oh god, that's horrible, yeah! It's like someone was simultaneously cutting my neck, while giving me a really good foot massage. It was the weirdest thing, re-watching this film with analysis mode on it. It's like, ah. Now, I'm not going to get into a lot of the deconstruction of the rest of the film. Like I said, this is not, this is not where I'm going to do that. I, it would be mostly negative, and it would almost entirely be talking about the, uh, the script. You'll notice I've said almost nothing in character with regards to this film. Part of that is because there, there in my opinion, isn't really anything worth talking about in character, except for one final thing. Except this isn't in character. I, I just realized that. There is one fourth thing I want to talk about, but it's not in character. Um, there, there's nothing... I mean, I mean, I could talk about, you know... No, I, I, everything I want to talk about in character I already have in the past, in my previous video. The, the motivations of Khan, the, the presentation of the characters, etc. So let's talk about something else instead, shall we? The last thing I have to talk about. This film is Star Trek 2009 in different clothing. Script-wise. Solely script-wise. If you actually take the two scripts, put them side by side, and look back and forth between the set pieces, it's all there. 
Now, you, I know you can say that about a lot of movies, but and, and I'm one of those big people who's really big on the idea that originality doesn't exist, and therefore there's no reason to look at something as bad just because it's not original or not a new idea. I actually like remakes if they're done well. I actually like reimaginings if they're done well. I actually like the type of games that I like, you know, from previous things that are not new game ideas, if they're done well. But if you keep, if you're listening to what I'm saying here, I keep saying these words that are very important, if they're done well. But in this case, the similarities between 2009 script and Into Darkness's script are a little bit glaring. I'm not going to go down the list. You can do it yourself. It's pretty obvious. I'm sure there's been an article or two on the internet about, hey, so this happens and this happens, this happens. But I mention this because it's very important to explain one of the reasons why I feel this is not a Star Trek film. I talked about that last time. 2009 character focus ideology. And, you know, I, I talked about this last week. You know, that's that's why I feel that is still deserving of being a Star Trek film and is overall a good film. This film. The only character moments are the moments that are literally parroting the previous ones, except for the new ones regarding Khan. Except for the fact that the only difference between Khan and them is better acting, which is obvious, and the fact that we see his motivations more on screen rather than off screen. That's pretty much the real difference between uh, Nero and Khan in terms of their motivations, if you think about it, from a script perspective, from a structural perspective. So... (laughs) There's no new characterization. It's basically, okay, What's the, what, who's the main character of Into Darkness? Well, it's Spock again. And it's Spock going through this same character arc he just went through in 2009. And what's happening with Kirk? Well, he's going through this same character arc he just went in 2009. What about Uhura? Well, she's going through this same character arc she just went through in 2009. It feels like we're backpedaling so we can tread water for a little bit longer. And it feels lazy. And that, again, is one of the things that I point to these writers, dumbass A and dumbass B, as, as being a bad writing. They, they tend to write lazy writing. It's the same concept that goes into things happen because the plot demands it. It is, a, it is a form of laziness. Rather than actually sitting down and thinking out, okay, this needs to happen here, so I need to find a way to make it so that that makes sense in story and, and actually flows through the theme of the work. No, no, let's just make something happen. It's the same concept. It's just laziness. Well, let's make Spock go through the I'm a hybrid thing again. And let's make Kirk go through the I'm a jackass thing again and I need to command the Enterprise. And let's make Kirk lose command of the Enterprise for, for dumb reasons. And then immediately get be, be put on, and I mean like within minutes, be put back onto the first officer slot. And then not too long after that, be given the captain's chair again. Just ba-ba-bam, like that. What? I'm done. I'm done. I'm tired of being negative. This is the end thing. There's no bonus video after the end of this. This is the last of my look at the Star Treks. I know they're working on Star Trek 3, a.k.a. 14 or whatever for the next one. If you've been paying attention uh, way back in the first film, in my in, motion, in, in the motion picture thing, I talked about the odds and evens rule. And back during the Galaxy Quest thing, I pointed out that the odds and evens rule is technically true depending on your perspective, depending on your viewpoint. And in my viewpoint, this is Star Trek 13. Uh, as opposed to Star Trek 12, a.k.a. an odd movie, a.k.a. not good, <laughs> or not as good at the very least. Um, that means, theoretically, the next movie will be a, an even movie. Do you think this... Well, I, I'd love to get here, guys. Do you think this is going to continue? Do you think it's going to work forward? I mean, the problem... And I'm going to go ahead and talk about the new movie just for a little bit here, because it's been asked of me. The problem with the new movie that's coming out, Star Trek 14 or whatever, 
is that it has virtually no studio support. If you look into the behind the scenes, if you look into what's been going on with the construction of the film, yes, Simon Pegg is working on the screenwriting along with a guy I've literally never even heard of before. I, I've looked at his credits and I was like, who the heck is this guy? So those two people are writing the script, okay? Um, and they don't really have people a lot nailed down as far as who's going to be working on it and how much of its budget's going to be and all that fun stuff. And it's slated to come out next year, and they're supposed to be starting uh, filming at the end of this year because they're trying to hit the, the anniversary next year. It's also worth noting that that's the only thing that we know of that is planned for Star Trek's anniversary next year. That's it, a movie that has no studio support. You see where I'm going with this. I mentioned several videos ago that Nemesis was doomed from the beginning because the studio didn't give it support. Because at no point in time did anyone stand up and try to defend the film and make sure that it got the funding and the people and the backing and the political setup so that it actually would be presented well enough that it would actually succeed. It's a little too early to say, but everything I've seen so far about the new one is exactly the same scenario. And I really, really, really hope I'm wrong. But I feel like we're about to see Star Trek die again. This may also be why Renegades has not yet been renewed by CBS. Although that could also just be because CBS are the soulless harbingers of doom. Oh, who knows? I really hope I'm wrong on this. I would love to see you know, the Star Trek XIV succeed. I would love to see a new Star Trek show. Realistically, though, I think we're not going to. And that sucks. Shrug. Live long and prosper, guys.